If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hello, friends. You know, we're so, so glad that you decided to listen to this episode of the Heretic Happy Hour podcast because we are now in the fifth episode of our incredibly awesome Clobber Passages series. It's clobbering time. Thank you. I was waiting for that. Thank you, Derek. Uh, my name is Keith Giles. I am the author of uh, the Jesus Un series, including the most recent uh, Jesus Unexpected, Ending the End Times to Become the Second Coming. And I am joined by my marvelous co-hosts, Katie, Derek, and Matt. Introduce yourselves and say hi. Hi, I'm Katie Valentine. I'm the author of Sex, Slavery, and Self-Control, and I am really happy to unclobber all of this mess today. So I'm excited about this episode. And I am Derek Day. I'm the author of Deconstructing Religion, the host of the Forward Podcast, and an angry black man by profession. (laughs) That's a nuance, Derek. That's a new one. That's a new one. Uh, and that makes me Matt DiStefano, author of two books on Whippenstock that you can get now. Woo! The good ones are on Whippenstock. The, the, the shit ones are on choir. <laughs> but no, no, no. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right. I'm putting that in the show notes. Yeah. That's enough of you, Ralph. Uh, I'm excited for another episode. Uh, number five. We're approaching 100. Did you, all know, did you all know that? We're almost yeah, to our 100th episode. Yeah. We're 97, right? 97. Crazy. Yeah. Crazy. Excited, excited. I'm so delighted to be part of this August body. But just in case you didn't know, there is a hotline that you can call exercising finger dexterity and dialing 240-343-7379. Once again, it's 240-343-7379. And we have a text. So roll that beautiful text footage, y'all. And it reads... Do you guys feel that progressive Christianity leads itself to agnosticism by its very nature? I feel that when I listen to many current deconstructing authors or content creators, that God becomes symbolic and not truly theistic. Sincerely, Hugo. Well, I think you're reading too much Alyssa Childers, personally. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Any any Alyssa Childers is too much Alyssa Childers. Yeah, anything is too much, yeah. well, I mean, I don't know. We, I'm sure we all have different opinions about this. I, I mean, um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I guess it depends on what progressive sort of authors, deconstructing uh, authors you may be referring to, because I know a lot of progressive authors from Marcus Borg to Bishop Spong to Brian Zonnebredger, Zach and Greg Boyd, who I don't think are agnostics. I think they do believe that God is real and that we can have a connection, a spiritual connection with God. I just think it isn't, um, it doesn't look like or sound like necessarily what we may have heard in some kind of fundamentalist evangelical circles, but I don't think it necessarily leads to agnosticism. Um, But I mean, whatever, I guess it, it kind of depends. This is the thing. Progressive Christianity isn't really sort of one thing either. Um, I think that's sort of a broad thing a broad definition that many things could fall under that umbrella but anyway in general that's kind of my my thoughts 
Yeah, there's no Vatican to declare it agnostic or theistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A broad umbrella. Yeah, I, I'll I'll say that to some degree, a lot of it does lead to agnosticism or atheism, but but not in the way we we typically would define those those terms. I think in in, in some regard, we come a- we become atheistic to the God that we may have believed in, to the God concepts that we assumed were true. But I don't think it it necessitates um, a- atheism or agnosticism as such, and and I would I would I'd be curious to ask Hugo what what they what you mean by uh, uh, truly theistic. I think a lot of times when we talk about God, um, we should be in the analogous or metaphorical realm rather than the literal. And I think when we are analogous or we're pointing toward God, that sounds like it's just symbolic, but our words are just symbols. They're not actual things. So um, maybe it just sounds that way, but I don't think most progressive Christians are agnostic. Yeah, and I I don't think that it leads to agnosticism by nature. Uh, I believe that Pretty just like anything else, um, you anything can lead to anything. Uh, mm-hmm. All roads lead everywhere. <laughs> if I could say something really heretical, uh, but but when um, wh- what I think about this is like deconstructing authors, and everybody's on a different um, a different point on that real static spectrum, right? So so there is no specific uh, author that's leading to a specific conclusion it's like it, it, there are so many different outcomes right uh and and i don't believe that god is becoming symbolic i believe that that when you get right down to it you realize you realize that god is one and when you realize that god is one you realize that we are god <laughs> but just to be on the safe side hugo perhaps perhaps you might want to uh wander down the hall uh, to the um, the the Calvinist Angry Hour, that that podcast. Well, no. Here and speaking of Calvinism, I mean, I got to say, let, let's be fair. I think eternal teachings no, like not eternal- to Calvinists. No, 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 no. I will not be fair to Calvinists. Sorry. Oh, okay. Well, I, what I mean is, um, <laughs> you know, I mean to be fair to in the sense of like, ah, you blaming, said it again. Damn yeah, it. blaming blaming things on point. In other words, accusing progressivism as leading. To uh, agnosticism, I mean this in, in this sense of fairness. I think Calvinism and, and the eternal conscious torment and things like that has also led a lot of people towards agnosticism and atheism as well. Like a lot of people are just like, you know what? If that's who God is, I'm out. Yeah, I love I love the question because I haven't ever considered it like this. But I will say one of the things I see among many of my progressive colleagues and friends, especially in the work that I do around metaphysics is they get very focused on the here and now, which I think is great. Like in you know, our world, taking care of problems in the world, addressing social injustices. And then sometimes they actually leave out some of the spiritual dimensions. Like God becomes so, not, not amorphous, like God is still very personal and caring, um, but they actually don't talk about the spirit. They actually don't talk about, um, they don't talk about sort of eternity, like what that may be like. Um, and so that can lead to sort of a, a nihilism so I think for I've had a lot of progressive friends who um, want they they're like actually I need a way to talk about spirituality more. So it's like balancing out that the evangelical conservative obsession with eternity and bringing it into a progressive framework. So I can see how that could lead to sort of agnostic because you you stop talking about God. You're only talking about problems. Yeah. 
Great, great question. No, I, I love all those answers. Great question. Cool. Great question. Question. Here you go. Yeah. Well, you also, I think we're ready to shift to our heretic of the week. But before we do, I have to say, my teen self is really, really happy. This is a special treat. Um, anyone who listened to Christian pop music in the 90s is going to be really, really thrilled with our heretic of the week. So let's meet him. It's the heretic of the week. Oh, yes. Uh, hi, my name is Kevin Max, and uh, people call me a lot of different things, but um, this week I'm a heretic. Hi, Kevin. Oh, Kevin, man, I'm so glad we had a chance to sit down and talk with you. So, Kevin, Max, if uh, people don't know, you are uh, one of the, the founding members of DC Talk. And you've done quite a lot of solo work recently as well. Um, but I've been following you on Twitter and I've noticed uh, some of your tweets lately. You've been getting a little more uh, honest and introspective. And I've noticed kind of sharing some of your thoughts and questions and doubts. And so um, I thought, wow, Kevin, I would love to just sit down and talk to you and figure out, you know, what is it that some people might want to call you a heretic or, or, or have called you a heretic in the past? Yes. Um well, at 53 now, I've decided to st start coming out of my shell and uh, really being um, kind of forthright with my thoughts and opinions. And uh, it's kind of a joke because for those that have followed my uh, solo career since about 2000, I've been pretty outspoken, but, but mainly through my lyrics in the music. Um, so a lot of people that don't know who I am beyond DC Talk always kind of find it shocking that I've, I've got lyrics that kind of um, go off the path of what, you know, DC talk was all about. Um, and so, um, yeah, I mean, I have more questions uh, than answers if ever in my life than right, than right now. Um, and I've, you know, I feel, I've told many people, I feel like I've been de deconstructing for two decades, you know? Mm. Um, and I've always been at odds with the with the church, with the with the uh, with the actual modern church. I've always at, I've always been at odds with it, and been a misfit. Never felt like I really you know fit in. Uh, and so, in my way, I've been able to create. Um, I've made eighteen solo albums since going solo in two thousand, and they, they pretty much tell my story. And and um, even up to this last record I just did called Radio Technica, I kind of really let it go from a political standpoint, kind of taking a stand for the first time in what I believe in, well, what I think I believe in politically. And uh, people were just really shocked that I started, you know, doing political music. And um, I, maybe I even shocked myself, but uh, it's been a great release to be able to just kind of be honest and not having to, um, you know, be about fear and, and uh, constantly damage controlling myself or, yeah. Contextualizing myself whenever I talk, you know? Right. So what are some of the things that you personally started to question, you know, when it comes to maybe the faith that you were raised in or grew up with? Like, what, what were some of those things that you started to question and then, and then started to write about? Well, you know, I've, I've, I grew up in a, in a, in a church um, in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I grew up Baptist. And uh, one of the things I talked about the other day was being in quiz team. And having to learn the scripture to the point where, you know, you had to anticipate the scripture 
and you know jump off your seat and and know how to you know um, immediately memorize and and it, it was so um intense the the fear that was related to that that you just had mm-hmm. to know scripture so well so i've grown up in this place where i've learned a lot about scripture and and um and then i was kind of uh you know i would say positioned by my family to go to a christian college i really didn't want to go to a christian college i i didn't really know where i wanted to go but my parents kind of were pushing me towards finding a Christian college. And I ended up at Liberty University. Hmm. And I was kicked out my first semester. Um, <laughs> Whoa. What? Good for you. I didn't what like you it. kicked out? Wait, there's a story. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So um, it, this has been a reoccurring thing um, throughout my life, you know, as a believer within the church, never really, tr- really truly fitting and always having questions and not knowing, you know, where I, what, what my place was, you know, and um, I think over time I started, God became larger to me than smaller. And um, I started asking more questions, you know, and is the scripture truly, you know, infallible? Is, is, is this work of human, you know, people that wrote these words down, is it truly an error? And I've, I've kind of grappled with that even more so now uh, than ever. And kind of come away going, I don't know, and I, I, I don't, I don't think so. And, mm-hmm. uh, but I still believe um, in. Uh, and, and Richard Rohr was, um, you know, I just started reading Richard Rohr, and one of one of the things that he said is, we moved from wondering to answering, which has not served us well at all. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like, uh, you know, that's been my life. Everybody had an answer for everything. Right. You know, and we've never been able to really contemplate the mystery of God. And God has gotten larger and larger and more mysterious for me as time has gone on. And I've kind of displayed that throughout my my music and my art from from day one and struggled with fitting in with conventional church. And today, you know, just the total hypocrisy of the evangelical church um, and uh, all of that has just got me you know, tied up. Yeah, exactly. I love the way you say that. um, I don't think I've ever heard anyone express it that way, that God gets bigger, the more, the less we know, like the, or at least the more we admit that we don't have it all figured out. Um, And that God gets smaller when we sort of say, Oh, you know, this is that, and this proves that, and we understand this and that. And we basically end up with a God who is, who really neatly fits into our theological box. But, Absolutely. He looks really a lot like us. Yeah. I I, I kind of, when I, I went back and lived in my hometown of Grand Rapids a few years ago, when I found out my oldest son had autism, we moved back just to, to be close to family because we didn't know anything about autism. And at the time I thought being close to family would be smart, you know? And um, since then we, we've moved back to, to, to Franklin and uh, realized, okay, this is cool. We we can we can do this. And I've been in Franklin since 2012 again. So um, while I was in Grand Rapids, I tried this uh, church called Fountain Street, you know, which was a Unitarian church. Uh, um, uh, I think Unitarian, Universalist Unitarian. Yeah. Uh, it was very interesting because at the fir- for the first time, I went to a church that I felt like I was kind of, I I felt kind of okay. I'm, I'm they'll accept me, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I, I, I came away bored after like the third time. So it was, um, I've, I feel like, you know, church for the most part in my life has been more about creating boxes and less about trying to pierce the mystery of God. And, and, um, you know, that's so that I'm not really interested in it. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think learning to be okay with mystery is, is a really difficult thing. And a lot of people I've talked to who have deconstructed their faith. Um, that's one of the things I think a lot of people will report and say, you know, that they've suddenly discovered the beauty of mystery and that they don't, it's okay to say, I don't know. It's okay to say, I think, or I believe, but, but not, uh, feel the need to be some sort of theological, uh, you know, answer man or something. Um, yeah. And, you know, I think, and I think it is, there's a lot more freedom in that. And I think we end up connecting with a God who's probably closer to the actual God rather than the one we made in our own image. Like, like Katie was saying. So are there any other, any other things, Kevin, that you, so it seems like, yeah, you started thinking about the Bible not being in, uh, infallible and inerrant. And then maybe some political things. Were there any other specific things or were there experiences that you had that you felt like kind of pushed you more in that in that area of asking questions? Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah. And, you know, being able to see behind the veil of, you know, over a thousand churches across America and, <laughs> you know, that, that kind of process. You saw the belly of the beast on your tours. <laughs> yes. That helped the process. Not to mention, you know, um, you know, just constantly being, you know, micromanaged and made to think a certain way within the industry once once I would kind of rebel against that. And, you know, um, my wife always reminds me, you're such a rebel, you know, and you, you just can't go with the flow. It's it's not in you to go with the flow. And I, and I said, you know, I always tell her, I think Jesus was the original rebel, you know, he, he right. against the church leadership of his day. So. You know, what is rebellion? How, how do we define rebellion? I I just felt like, you know, there was something more out there. And I, I felt like it, it seemed so, um, you know, fear-based, judgment-based. Um, now, as an older man, seeing, you know, the, the, the total um, horrific way the church treats certain types of people just yeah. blows my mind. And... Uh, you know, I became friends with David Hayward uh, through Twitter and everything. And I love the Naked Pastor's artwork and I completely relate to what he does. And I just, yeah. I just think it's amazing that he's, you know, standing up um, in such a cool way. Uh, and, um, you know, I asked, actually asked him to do a t-shirt with me. I, I wrote a song on the last record I did, Radio Technica, called uh, Jesus, I Love You, But Your Followers Freak Me Out. And... Um, <laughs> It's, uh, you know, it talks about how, you know, these crazy people that picket gay, gay functions and, you know, it's just, I, I list all the ideas of how I just think the, uh, the, the evangelical followers just have got it wrong, you know? And are yeah. So that, that, that song title reminds me of uh, something Gandhi once said. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it loves your Jesus, but it's the, fo it's the followers that are the problem. Yeah, he could be a Christian, except for the. Except for the have to be a Christian. Yeah. I wrote a song just recently for a band that I'm working on. I'm, I'm doing a band project. I'm kind of saying no to being a solo artist for the first time since 2000. Um, I've decided to just kind of 
you know, not give up, but just kind of set the mantle down and go, you know, get away from myself because I'm largely in my own way. So um, I decided to make a band thing happen with my longtime guitar player, Eric Cullen. We're, we're working on a record and the band is called Sad Astronauts. And um, one of the songs I wrote right away was a song called It's Okay. And the lyrics go, it's okay to be estranged from everything that you were taught. It's okay to unpack all the hopeless baggage that you bought. Uh, I know the sun, it never shines in the same place twice. I know that life is better with a trusted advice, but you'll change when you cave to the universal Christ. And it says, uh, it's okay for you to lose the shame from all the church's abuse. And it's okay for them to see that you don't agree with man's inerrancy, blah, blah, blah. So, mm. um, you know, in a way I'm, for the first time, really coming out directly in lyrics, not as opaque or esoteric, um, really more just saying it the way that it is. And Radio Technica was a big breakthrough for me with that because um, it's largely a poetry record and it's me speaking poetry over crazy electronic beats. So I was able to do these crazy, you know, lit literary packed uh, songs um, for the first time. And that was great. I, f I feel like you've been a mystic kind of trapped in a, um, in the confines of the world for a lot of what you described on, on this journey. And you mentioned early on, like two decades ago, like something kind of happened two decades ago in your journey, um, as you were maybe, maybe leaving some of your young adulthood and moving, you know, moving into the, into your thirties and forties. I'm curious if you can just kind of describe what, what was happening then for you as it, was it getting out of this box that people had put you in and be beginning to express yourself? Constantly um, and consistently, I tried to get out of the box. Uh, but I also, you know, had great respect for the two guys that I was in the band with, you know, and we were friends and we still are friends. And so it was really hard for me to, you know, be an individual in a group that was largely about three different people. Um, and so when we all decided to take a break from DC talk and, and go solo, I mean, I had so many ideas and so many songs and so many things that I wanted to say that were just bottled up in me for years. I mean, I let a little bit of that out in 1994 with a, with a poetry book I did with Jim Abeck. Um, and, uh, he, uh, he and I decided to, you know, create a book with his paintings and my and my poetry and it was like a major outlet for me at the time because i remember thinking oh my gosh i can really say what i want to say now for the first time and and, and uh so when i went solo in in 1999 2000 there were so many things and and i was actually on virgin records at the time that i was creating the the the, the project that i made so it was a general market record uh you know, no holds barred, write whatever you want. And it was such a release for me to kind of write these songs. So when I w put out the record, we actually uh, were, were shuttled back from Virgin to EMI Christian. And EMI Christian Music Group put this record out, Stereotype B, that was largely songs that weren't faith-based. And so people were just like, what is this guy? He's singing, right. he's singing songs about chicks, you know, <laughs> or, or the apocalypse. Or what is what is he singing about? And for me, it was just all these cool ideas that I had bottled up for, for a long time that I wanted to get out. And, uh, you know, I even played with the imagery by wearing a feather boa to, uh, to one of the photo shoots. And, and uh, 
I know the record label was like going, oh my, <laughs> why is he wearing a feather boa? I'd, I'd really like to see this photo. Is this available? <laughs> that is available. That is on the web. Awesome. Uh, for many first four years, I'd wear feather boas on stage and throw them out. Kind of like Elvis Presley and scarves, you know, like, okay. <laughs> that was like my scarf, you know? Um, uh, so anyways, uh, stereotype B was the culmination of so many years of wanting to, you know, be myself. And one, one of, one of the songs I wrote on the record was called B and it is, it's basically saying be yourself. There's no one else that, that can do it, you know, other than you. So, um, you know, stereotype B comes from that whole idea of, I was trying to break from the stereotype, you know? Uh, yeah. So I, I've got to ask you this question, Kevin. I, I don't think I can get through this interview without asking you this question. So oh boy. are you still a Jesus freak? <laughs> yes. I, I'm, I, I put it on all my, you know, social media that I'm still a Jesus freak, but I'm a gothic hippie, inclusive Jesus freak. Um, and, uh, you know, I just, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a hippie to begin with. So I, I tend to, again, think of things a little bit more abstract and I, and I love the hippie aesthetic of things like mm -hmm. loving nature, loving people, thinking that we can all get through this. I mean, Radio Technica was all about utopia. Um, it was the, the first, uh, title of the record actually was Utopia Mine, M-I-N-E. And it was like all about, Hey, we can get along together. If we just, you know, drop all the hatred and all the fear and all the doubt and all the judgment, you know? Uh, yeah. And so I so much relate to Christ. I mean, I'm haunted by the Christ every day. Like I, I can't, my house is filled with paintings, old paintings of Jesus, you know? Um, because I think if anything, we can look at his, uh, you know, his words, his life, his servanthood to people and never come away with a negative thought about Christ. Um, mm. And I think that's powerful. I think that's, uh, you know, that's why we have this massive religion out there, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it is interesting to me that I think, you know, a lot of times when people go through deconstruction, people on the outside looking in assume, well, you're losing your faith, you're, you know, you're in danger. And, and maybe there is a danger for some people of maybe losing their faith. But, but what I see most often is the opposite. It's actually a lot of times people who are deconstructing what they're, what they're shedding is religion, but what they're getting closer to is Jesus. Like it's closer to a more, you know, like Sermon on the Mount level of Jesus of like, Hey, yeah, love one another and even your enemies and bless those who curse you and uh, wash one another's feet. Like that they're actually getting closer to that Jesus. And that's, what's odd to me too, is that when you're doing that, you're actually positioning yourself as sort of an outsider to the Christian church. Like people in the Christian church see you becoming more like this Jesus and they don't recognize you like that in itself says something, you know, it, uh, you're, it's, yeah. it's a huge statement. And I, and I feel like, it, again, I mean, Jesus um, didn't fit in even with the religion of his time, you know, and right. it, it was, um, it's amazing because I, I don't, I can't think of another example um, that I would want to mimic more, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, I love John Lennon, you know, and I love, and I love a lot of John Lennon's thoughts and his music. I was a Beatles fan, you know what I mean? But John Lennon pales in comparison. Um, 
so does Leonard Cohen, so does, uh, you know, all the great writers. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like um, the Jesus that I believe in, the Jesus that I relate to, uh, would be so quickly cast out of the church today. Right. Um, and yeah. uh, that's what I um, really, I, I really see that in David's art, you know, um, going back to David Hayward, I really see that in his art. I see him as somebody asking a lot of questions and really kind of not, not even pushing the envelope to shock people, but being very honest about what he believes in, you know, and I love yeah. uh, about his, his work. You know, what would you say there's, what would, what question would you say is on your, on your mind, on your spirit right now? What question? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What things. question? Yeah. What, what cosmic question about, uh, yeah, about God, the universe, Jesus? Yeah. The cosmic question would be why heaven and hell, you know, like what, what are those constructs and why, why do we need them? You know? Um, Mm -hmm. and I think, you know, it's very interesting to think also about reincarnation, you know, maybe reincarnation is a part of this situation where we're constantly Mm -hmm. learning, you know, and I wrote, I wrote a a poem on uh, radio Technica about that called universal you. And it's all about like, what if reincarnation was real, you know? Um, but yeah, those are the big questions, obviously, but it's like, um, I guess, uh, you know, for, for me, um, the struggle that I have is knowing, you know, what my kids are going to, how they're going to grow up and what they're going, what they're going to see as they grow up and how they're going to relate to this world and what they're going to believe as they, as they progress, you know, and, uh, I try to be very open-minded with them. But also let them know, hey, you know, I grew up, you know, in the church, believing the Bible was 100% inerrant. And, you know, you're going to have to find your own truth out by reading it and going in deep, trying to figure out what it is, you know. Um, So it's pretty heavy to be a dad. Uh, It's uh, very heavy. (laughs) It's heavy, you know. Um, I had a thought there about heaven and hell, but I lost it, uh, you know. (laughs) That's okay. So, so, so you mentioned, um, a recent, uh, record release. Do you have any, uh, projects that you're currently working on that, that will be coming out shortly? Um, and, and where can people discover your music, listen to your music? Uh, I don't even people don't even buy records these days, do they? It's all digital. No. Well, it's, it's, it's sad, the state of the, the music, uh, industry. Um, but I also think it's great because it's, 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 level the playing field and uh people have to get really creative again to make a living you know right. but for me um yeah i mean kevinmax.com is, is an obvious place to go but i'm everywhere on spotify apple you know uh what's the other one big one amazon <laughs> uh, all those general places I'm, my music is there and i've made 18 solo albums since 2000 i've uh, done a lot of strange little singles and collaborations as well like a guy on Twitter told me today, he's never worked a day, uh, he's never worked an honest job in his, or day in his whole life. You know, <laughs> I was like, wow. So I guess like 25 albums isn't working. <laughs> Thousands of shows. Just, just dicking yeah. off for 20 years, man. <laughs> yeah. Like, entertainment it's, isn't a real job. That's what yeah. people Sitting down and writing music takes no, you know, no training. Oh, yeah. We all do it. Right. Right. Well, some, some people are more natural than others, but I, I feel like, yeah. 
I mean, there's a whole lot of hard work that goes in, in maintaining a, a music career. And I feel bad for guys. I mean, I'm not a big live performer. I don't really like to be on stage that much anymore. I used to love it. Now my, my passion is being in a studio creating. Um, so I'm having a blast. I love isolation. You know, give me another five years of this stuff. <laughs> I'm going to create more records, you know. Universe, don't don't listen to that. We don't, we don't, need, we don't I mean, need five years, but I love that it's giving you the insight that you can do it. Yeah. Um, so in answer to, to his question, um, uh, this is an odd one, Matt, but I decided to recreate Larry Norman's Only Visiting This Planet because I became friends with Larry's son. I was friends with Larry when he was alive. Uh, DC Talk covered a couple of his songs um, throughout the years, and we became friends. When he passed away, I had this weird idea of covering Only Visiting This Planet, because that was the first Christian rock record I ever really related to, you know? And I didn't relate to much after that, actually. Strange mm-hmm. enough. I mean, like, Maybe Steve Taylor, maybe the 77s, maybe Charlie Peacock. And that was about it, you know, but, um, and I'm really generalizing here. So I'm sorry if I'm hurting fa- feelings. No, that's okay. <laughs> but, you know, like Larry's, Larry was like John Lennon to me. So I was like, man, I want to redo this album. And I started, you know, and then I met his son at a show. I did a show in Portland, Oregon, and his son came up afterwards and we talked. Um, and I told him my idea and he was like, you have to do this. You know, my dad would love you doing this. You know, I'm sure Larry would smile on you redoing this record. So I got into doing this record in the middle of my deconstructing, you know, mm-hmm. and realizing some of these songs, I just didn't relate to them anymore. But I also really thought it was important to put this record out there in terms of history for people to realize where Christian rock even started from. What, what was it? What was the catalyst to get, you know, this burgeoning CCM empire to happen, you know? So I did this record. It's kind of a swan song to the whole industry. And as I was doing it uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I mean, I started realizing the song, uh, I Wish We'd All Been Ready is such a trigger. <laughs> yeah. It's such a trigger song that I was like, oh, man. And I, I just don't believe in ra- rapture theology at all. So what what so i decided to just drop it from the digital uh thing and and then um i wrote my own song called god part four which is really kind of tying in my ideas of where i'm politically and theologically into the record and so i asked to ask massive forgiveness for larry and and grace from him you know wherever he is um but I, I'm, I'm proud of it. So I sent it to Keith. I hope maybe it can be played at some point. But um, so that record is coming out. It's called Revisiting, Revisiting This Planet. Comes out November 20. And then Sad Astronauts um, is my uh, foray into being in a band again and not looking back for a while. Uh, so I'm excited about that. And Sad Astronauts is is an indie alternative rock band. Um, our music is, you know. It's uh, it's going to be more prob- probably rock and roll than than it is uh, stuff that I've done in the past, which is more electronic and kind of all pop. So um, cool. And now, do you is the Sad Astronauts uh, project? Is there is there an album? Is there other songs, or is that something still in progress? 
Still in progress, we're going to go to a Kickstarter in January, and we're hoping to raise the money to, you know, take care of the recording process um, and then some of the marketing behind it, too. So I've done some campaigns musically with fans for over the past five years. I've done four or five of those, and they've been really great. They've been successful. Um, we've been able to raise the money to make the records and, and send vinyl to people and CDs. So we're hoping to do that with Sad Astronauts, but with Sad Astronauts is really a departure from what I've been doing as a solo artist. This is a completely separate thing um, because it's a band scenario and we're really heading towards the uh, general market alt in the crowd, you know, and uh, excited about it. At 53, I can still rock and roll. Yeah. Damn right. Yeah. At least I try. Yeah. Very cool. Well, man, Kevin, thank you so much for this conversation. Um, wonderful to hear just the, the, where you're at, the, the progress you've been making, the questions you've been asking, and your honesty with with us here and just with your fans and, and through your art, being able to express these things. I know a lot of people resonate with that and uh, being able to express it in a creative way. Uh, it's very meaningful for a lot of people. So thank you so much, Kevin. It's a, it's a pleasure. Thank you for doing what you do, too. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, guys. All right, thanks. Oh, yeah, Kevin, mother effing Max. I can't believe Did that just happen? Did that just happen? I Wow, that was cool. I wish I could have a, an autograph now. because That would go on a poster that was in my room <laughs> when I was 16. <laughs> you, you, you still have it? Fuck, I wish I was. I wish I was there. You guys put me in the closet again. <laughs> let, let me out of the damn closet, please. All right, next time. Let me. Why, why don't right, you sing a little you. solo from Jesus Freak there? We'll think about it. Uh, no. <laughs> why? I like your boundaries. All right. That'd be my response too. <laughs> what will people think if they find that I'm a Jesus Freak? Yes, I think I may have had a T-shirt back in the day too. I did not. I did not get into Christian rock, and uh, I'm actually kind of glad about that. No, no, no diss on Kevin, but. Um, I once sent Matt a video of uh, Amy Grant, Angels Watching Over Me. It made me really happy. So I think you have more videos coming your way, Matt, to reintroduce your teen self to some. Okay. Oh, is that what we're doing? Because I could send Matt lots of videos. That would be that would be fun. Let's let's do that. Let's bombard. Right. This is like before videos got good too. Yeah. Okay. Well, I know where the block button is. So. <laughs> <laughs> Smells like Teen Spirit. That's that's that wrong wrong band wrong band. <laughs> I know. I, I was just throwing. I was throwing it out there because it was. Well, no, but I mean, but that song "Jesus Freak" is steals quite a bit, pretty heavily from "Smells Like Teen Spirit," actually. So, shots fires. Look, am I am I saying something people don't know? Look, just go to YouTube and pull up both videos. Pull up the video for "Smells Like Teen Spirit" by Nirvana. Pull up the video for. Um, Jesus freak and listen to the first like 10 seconds and it's the same song. I, I will because I don't, I don't check it out. It's, it's uh, a yeah. kind of, it's kind of almost a, almost a note for note ripoff. All right. But uh, anyway, sorry, Kevin. Anyway, Kevin. sorry. Let's, let's take a, let's take a, a hard left here and, and get into the topic. <laughs> let's move on. Yeah. So what's our clobber today? What are we clobbering? Divorce, right? We're, you're, yeah. D-I-V-O-R-C. <laughs> Stand by you, man. Yes, divorce. Divorce. Uh, this is the, uh, this is like, uh, growing up as a Southern Baptist, 
it was one of these things where if you had had a divorce, uh, it was pretty much the end of your spiritual career. You couldn't be a deacon. You couldn't be an elder. You couldn't be a pastor. Uh, if you had been divorced in your past or if you experienced a divorce during your tenure as a on-staff church employee, it was pretty much curtains. Um, so yeah, divorce is like the big, almost like the unforgivable sin in many ways, depending on your denomination. And certainly in the Southern Baptist Convention, divorce was kind of the unforgivable sin. Which is which is weird because like in the circles I grew up in, like a lot of people were divorced. And so it was one of those ones where people got real nuanced with the Bible and the scriptures and the clobber passages, like the, like the LGBT clobber passages were, were clear. Oh yeah. But, but the divorce ones were maybe a little more contextualized and, uh, and written off. Yeah. And, and so, so it's just funny that in different circles, different clobber passages have, have, have different levels of clobber. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. Your mileage may vary. Yeah, that's, that's true. That's true. Uh, so what are the, what are the main ones we've got? We've got a couple from, do we want to start in the, uh, in the Hebrew or do we want to start in the, uh, the new Testament? We have to start in the old Testament, I think, right? You have to start. Oh, sure. Old school. We'll go, we'll go old school. That's fine. Well, let's, let's do this before we even start on divorce. What constitutes marriage? That's a better. See, because you have to define what, what is marriage before you start talking about what divorce is. You know what? That is actually a very fascinating question, Derek, because to be very honest, as far as I can tell, if you were to go through the scriptures and try to find um, like, okay, if marriage is such a big deal, then why doesn't God say, here's how to get married. Here's what makes you married. Here's how, here's like a marriage ceremony and a service. Here's how, what it must involve and what it must contain. I mean, there are specific instructions in the Bible for many other ceremonies and rituals, but really nothing. Nothing about marriage, really. You know, you know what I get from it? When I, when I see biblical marriage defined, it's bringing that hymen out after you're done. Well, it's many things. That's what symbolizes. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, if you want to talk about biblical marriage, um, biblical marriage is marrying a woman and her sister. And that's uh, not frowned upon. That's like, okay. Yeah. That's biblical. Or having a bunch of wives and some concubines to boot. Yes. I'm, I'm just throwing this out there because, you know, when we talk about divorce, it, it's like when, when people talk about divorce today, right, it's going to the church, getting the pastor to counsel you, yeah. getting a marriage license, reciting the vows in front of the people and being pronounced by the priest. And that's, that's marriage according to modern standards. But that's not what a biblical marriage is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that, that's such a good point. Like, it's really difficult, to be honest, to like jump into the divorce topic without having. I mean, if you're going to say, look, we need to stand on what the scriptures say about divorce. And yes, there are verses that talk about divorce. But you would say, you would think, well, let's also then start with what the Bible says about marriage. But if you go to, if you go to look at what the Bible says about marriage, it says a bunch of stuff that we today would look at and say, yeah, no, no, that's not what I think of when I think about marriage. So we already are admitting that culturally we are distanced from the scriptures when it comes to this idea of marriage to, to begin with. Um, and then if we admit that, then we would also, also then have to admit then we're probably also pretty far apart from what it would say about divorce because we don't even, we don't even agree with the Bible or the scriptures about what it says about marriage. And we think we do, but we really, we don't. 
Bingo. So not only that, but um, did y'all know that there's not even words for husband or wife in either Hebrew or Greek? What? I know. Holy yeah. crap. Yeah, the words are man and woman. Like Generally, that it, that's what it will say. And so we interject, you know, I mean, there's obviously we're marriages. Um, people were getting married. But yeah, no, not a lot of ritual, not a lot of description. And they didn't have words for, for that, at least none that are recorded. <laughs> that's right. crazy. Well, I'll be damned. <laughs> I know. I know. So, so wait it's a, minute. a little more fluid maybe than we think it is. Yeah. So, so wow. So now it's like, I, I want to go back and read. Old Testament and New Testament passages that use the words husband and wife and just trans just put in the words man and woman and God, see how that changes it. God damn yeah. it. Here goes Be Katie again, making me go back to read my Bible again. <laughs> uh, damn it. I, I mean, it's, it's clear most of the time that these people are married. I mean, that's not in question. We're not saying that marriage wasn't that isn't in existence, but the, the concepts of how we think about it today with these kind of defined um, defined terminology didn't really exist back then. Crazy. So, so I mean, we've got this one set of understanding of what marriage is now, and it might be different. So, obviously, then that is going to potentially change how we think of divorce as well, right? Am I am I am I too too far on a stretch to think that? Well, you know, when we we think about like again, modern marriage, marriage license, church, blah blah blah, right? So, when when we think about divorce, we think about the the state put it together the state renders it right so but but in in biblical times you didn't have that the state wasn't involved so how yeah. right. how exactly is it, what what exactly comprises a writ of divorce biblically yeah there there's no money pit situation you remember the old movie there's all this oh, yeah. litigiousness yeah yeah around divorce yeah it's um, a little more streamlined i think although although the romans could get quite um specific you know the wealthy the wealthier you are the more um the more kind of equivalent of a prenup you may have then but certainly in the ancient i think in the ancient hebrew um culture so, and, and yeah. you know, it, it, the poorer you are the less litigious it's going to so be so wait a minute if, right. if in, in in the hebrew marriage does that mean that if if you're divorced you give the hymen back i'm i'm just checking if you save the sheep i guess so okay all right so we do know right that there in in these like, let's start with the Old Testament, right? So in, in the Old Testament, sort of Hebrew way of the way they thought about marriage, it was still a very uh, patriarchal system. And, and and are there verses in the Old Testament that sort of uh, people use as clobber passages when it comes to, you know, divorce? Basically putting like this scarlet letter D on someone if they've had a divorce, there's some sort of a, they're broken, they're damaged goods or something like that. That's a good question. Damn it, Keith. Now you're going to make me go read my Bible. I, I, I have, I, honestly, <laughs> just off the top of my head, I can't think of one. I, well, I can't I mean, think you have the Ten Commandments, right? Do not commit adultery, but that doesn't say anything about divorce. It just says no. don't commit adultery, but let's say you do. Oh. It doesn't say, well, then get a divorce. No so, don't do that. You know, the, the interesting thing is uh, I, was, I was once a children's coordinator in a church, and the, my predecessor um, and I were very different theologically. And she had a re- kind of revisionist um, version of the Ten Commandments. And instead of you not don't commit adultery, which may be a little adult for a lot of kids, it was husbands and wives stay together. So it's I don't know that it's used as a clobber text, but there's a lot of assumptions. Yes. Because around it that have to do with divorce, I think. In the context well, and, of the and, and, Ten Commandments, if, you com- if you're divorced, you're committing adultery, right? Well, I mean, Jesus kind of tied those in together, right, in, in, in Matthew 5. I mean, it was, it yeah. was basically... The woman 
commits adultery if you divorce her, right? Uh, outside of, you know, sexual uh, unchastity or something. Right. Yeah. And I, all of these seem to take it back to Genesis. Uh, is it one or two? Yeah. Well, they seem to take it back to the one flesh. Uh, Genesis chapter two. I think that's yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. To, no, Genesis man, chapter two. Which, and, yeah. yeah. Which, you know, we talked about as a super affirming women oriented passage with <laughs> last time. But yeah. So it's the reinterpretation of that voice of that verse of one flesh, like Ooh. the husband and the wife or the man and the woman should be one flesh that gets spun into stigma so wait a second if they if i they, think um yeah if they become one flesh does it take like then a a, a priest acting as a butcher to <laughs> to split the flesh I surgery mean, I'm, I'm, I'm i'm asking because, you know one flesh right one flesh how do you how do you divide you know one into two well yeah with a bill of divorce i guess yeah i mean the um it's funny because i mean i i, I think I don't know, maybe, I don't know if you guys agree or not, but it feels like on one level, you could see where in general, maybe in a loose kind of way, the original intent was like, you know, for the good of the community and the, the you know, the, the, the village, the, the whatever, the society. It's better in general people, if they do decide to get married, stay together and keep their families together and not break apart the family, whatever. But then that becomes this thing where like, well, if you did, the, but if you do end up getting a divorce, um, that now there's you've you've committed some sin, you've done some horrible thing, you're a bad person, and now shame and guilt are laid upon you. I mean, I don't know if necessarily that was the original intention, but either way, it is certainly what has happened. I mean, we do know that that you know, regardless of what the scriptures say, we know that if you're a Christian today and you're going to church and you get a divorce, you are treated differently. You are looked at differently. When when you go to a new church, move, move to a new city, you join a new church, people find out, oh, you're divorced, or this is your second or your third marriage or whatever. There is, you know, this sort of like people look at you different, they treat you different, they, um, you know, you experience that. I mean, that's just a reality. You you experience that kind of thing, depending on the church, I guess. But uh, it is something within Christianity where divorce has become this it's an excuse to treat people differently and to put them in a little box or in a category. Yeah. And it's interesting how it can become an identity. And, you know, this is part of the clobbering, right? Because it keeps people in a particular way of being like, hi, I'm so-and-so. Are you married? No, I'm divorced. Like you, that, that becomes like all of who you are. And, you know, for women, especially, um, I say for men in leadership and then in conservative evangelical circles, and then definitely women as kind of sitting in pews, um, it's like that you're defined again by a man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's a problem, right? So yeah, taking away the stigma of this is so important. And one of, I, I had a friend's mother who was devoutly Catholic growing up and she was so funny because I was shocked that she said this. Um, she was like, oh, it's healthy people get divorced. Unhealthy people stay together miserable. Uh-huh. And it's so mm-hmm. true. Not, not that you can't be healthy and be married, but... <laughs> Right, there's know, so I, many unhealthy people who just stick it out. Yeah, I, th- I think that it's another. Well, no, and that's the thing. It, go ahead, Matt. Go for it, Derek. Oh, I was just saying. It, I, I, th- I think that it's just it's it's another one of these tools of, of manipulation and control. You know, where you take something, uh, you you take a passage of scripture and you and you kind of um, pervert and distort it in in order to put a leash around people. That that's that's the way I see it. Yeah, I can't like why why we're so invested and people's marital status and why why marriages get tax breaks is still a little beyond me. Still don't quite understand it. Because Christianity is obsessed with genitalia. <laughs> yes. 
Yeah, and purity. Okay, there's wow. something about purity that gets locked up in there, right? And identity. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, and it, and it and it's unfortunate too because. I mean, even though like if we go to Matthew five, that, you know, that's the kind of and we did a series on the Sermon on the Mount. We didn't really cover divorce too much, did we? I think it was like uh, a minute. Yeah. Yeah. We did this past show, I think. Yeah. But it's and it's it's one of those things where it's like, OK, it's good that at least there's um, like something that's there where it's like, well, you can get divorced for this one traumatic sort of thing. So I, I like that there, it, there's a little wiggle room. There's a little bit of a spirit of the law versus letter of the law thing going on. But I, I mean, I know this is going to be heretical. I would take it further than Jesus or outside of that context. And, and I mean, gosh, I just don't want to see people stay in, in marriages because that are traumatic, that are abusive. Well, there's no sexual immorality there, so stay with it. And it's like, no, that no. causes more trauma. There needs right. to be There needs to be that stigma removed so that, relationships that are abusive and toxic and detrimental and violent like there's no need for that relationship to be a relationship anymore and there's there should be no stigma if someone walks out of that relationship well no honestly let's just keep it simple like uh, that if if for whatever reason people come together and they 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 grow together and they grow apart and that's sort of like the cycle of life, right? So, so there, there are people in your life. Like I have friends. I'm, I'm going on 59 years old. I have a couple of friends that I've been friends with for 57 of those 59 years. And, but I've had some friends that I've, that I've known like, you know, 50 years and, and I'd kind of, kicked them to the curb or they kicked me to the curb. It's the ebb and flow. So what happens if you just, if you, you come together for a season, you realize, Oh, well, you know, this didn't work. So why should there be a stigma to that when it's the natural ebb and flow of human relationships that people grow together and they grow apart at churches, people come, they, they plug into a church and they leave a church, you know, what's the big deal. And, and so I'm, I'm with Katie. Um, you know, we need to, uh, come up with something that destigmatizes this, and 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 take all of the uh, I, honestly, just take all the thunder out of out of out of marriage, and and I, I want to say something here. I was looking at this this passage in um, in Matthew nineteen, and and this it says some Pharisees came to him and to test him. They asked, "Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause?" This and and so people will make a big deal out of this. They'll they'll create a doctrine around this particular verse of scripture when it's clear that this guy was trying to find out with his wife. This is what he you know. This is a, a contextual or situational thing that that someone has built into a doctrine. Well, yeah, and so both both Matthew five and Matthew nineteen are I think actually not about divorce. There, the divorce is the topic, but they're actually about porneia. Um, so again, we have this um, obsession. like Porn! Porn, yes. So we have this obsession, as you say, with genitalia. You know, ancient people did. We still do today. But porneia is simply translated as like sexual fornication. It's There's a connotation of sexual sin. But the New Testament very rarely actually defines it. Like, it's sort of a common understanding of what that would be. But this is, yeah, I mean, the, the, and Matthew 19 quotes directly Genesis 1 about the, you know, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. But they're actually, I mean, each time Jesus is talking about, but if you cause this woman to commit um, porneia because she is divorced, or if she commits porneia through adultery, then it's legal to, then it's legal to divorce her. 
But the situation where if you divorce a woman, you unintentionally cause her to commit pornea. Um, I, I don't think that this should have modern relevance for us, everyone. I want to be like super clear about that. You need to be divorced, be divorced. You're not committing. I don't think you're committing um, fornication or adultery or whatever the next time you have sex. But in the ancient world with their purity codes, um, this was a big deal. It would be hard for a woman to become remarried with a bill of divorce. There was stigma. There was shame. You know, so I see this as a way for Jesus to suggest um, that divorce shouldn't be so easy, right? It shouldn't be all on on the male um, partner right. in the marriage to be able to so easily issue a divorce because it has serious consequences for the ramica- ramifications of women's lives you know, right. in, in this time period. How we translate that to today, yeah, getting people to stay in marriages that are clearly unhealthy is um, beyond ridiculous. Yeah, and I think we said this before in the other episode, other episode we did, but this is really why it makes me angry because what I see in this passage is Jesus um, giving a response to a question that is intended. But Jesus' intent in this answer is to empower women, not to hold them back under oppression yep. to men I see that in a too. patriarchal society. He's trying to set them free from this, uh, where the man basically makes all the decisions. And to correct this so that it's more equal situation where the women, actually the women have even more power in the, in the marriage relationship when it comes to the decision of divorce. And instead, we have now taken these words and used them once again to put women back under subjection to men who are abusive verbally or emotionally or even physically. Uh, and so now pastors are quoting Jesus in Matthew 5 here and saying, well, you know, he hasn't had sex with another woman, so therefore you've got to stay in this marriage. And to me, that really makes me angry. That is the absolute opposite of the intent of what Jesus wants to accomplish here in this in this text. Um, yeah, I just wish we could understand yeah. what's really going on. And if we're going to apply anything from this text, let's please apply the end result the, that Jesus intended, which was to give women more equity and power in the, in their marriage, not less. And you don't want to see Keith when he's angry. Oh, <laughs> and I hate the translation in Matthew 19, uh, verse nine of unchastity. I, I don't think that quite captures the spirit of what Pornea was because that, and that again, faults the woman for having like sexual relations outside of her, you know, outside of her marriage. Um, and I don't think that's quite all it. Um, I understand that adultery is kind of the subject here. Um, I think we need a better a better translation as well because unchastity has so many overtones, uh, so many overtones of being like a proper Victorian lady. Just enough right. of that already, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have a quick question: Does honor shame culture play a lot into this? I think so. Yep. Yeah, because in my opinion, um, because being a shameful woman was considered a virtue, right? That's not the same as being shamed. Being shamed was um, a problem for for women in the ancient world. So men held the honor, women held shamefulness. But if a woman is like divorced, if she's divorced because of accusations of um, pornea, something like that, she's going to be in a shameful state. Um, And that's going to have consequences for her social life within her community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think honor shame comes into this quite a bit. you know, the the instruction not to divorce your wife, except for instances of the sexual fornication keeps her in a state of where she can be in relationship within the community, Uh, you know, and how much of that is actual and how much of that is um, uh, 
presumed we don't really know like we don't have a lot of i don't think we have so many instances of like what happens when a woman get divorced like there might be women out there who got divorced and they were like fucking hooray i am so happy right <laughs> they care about shame or shamefulness or any of that right like they're gonna go do their own thing and then you have women for whom that would matter a lot well yeah. right first of all before i get to my point i want i want to say we need to come up with a sca- uh, a scorecard for every time katie uses a, a, some derivative of the word fuck just uh, these clobber passages have me going. Yeah, <laughs> she's she's been on it for but for a couple watch, episodes. Now. I need. She has, I, need she, I should be keeping track like I did for our um, conspiracy. Yeah, oh, listen, right, this, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. this is episode five in this series, so I, I think that Katie has been five for five, right? I will go Katie, back to my chaste ways after this series. Well, and, and let's talk. About, I want to talk about this chast this unchastity <laughs> thing and chaste, right? Because is that is that saying that that the woman is supposed to be not sexual? Because when I think chaste, I'm thinking not sexual, like a virgin. It's chaste within the marriage relationship with your husband. Yeah, yeah. But yeah you know, yeah. here here's the thing though: is that if you look at this, you know, you can only get that context by inference. It isn't there explicitly. Yeah. So, so I'm thinking uh, if if it's if it's unchaste. Uh, so what what I'm thinking here is like okay when when uh, when Joseph was betrothed to Mary, and found out and she you know found out that she was with child, he wanted to put her away, i.e. divorce her, right? Right. Even though, even though they, they they hadn't consummated the marriage, but they were betrothed, which was considered as good as married, right? So so is is this a thing where if the if the wife is found to be uh, sexually active prior to the marriage, then that is the ground for divorce. Or and then yeah, yeah. So so it's, oh definitely yeah. I mean, but it, it's saying here like this this unchaste un, unchastity, but adultery is actually committing sex within the marriage. Right? It's two different things. That's that's all I was I was. I'm just in the mood to split a little. Yeah, and the word the word for adultery. Yeah. The word for adultery is different um, as well. It's a right, but the um, it, so many things could could be defined as, yeah, as sexual fornication. But I, Derek, I so agree with you that word the word chaste or unchastity has a lot of overtones yeah. in in English, especially when we talk about purity culture. Yep, um, and and the sexualization so- of women's bodies and objectification, and mm-hmm. it's it's one of those things to me where the liberating message. I do believe that this message of Jesus is liberating, but we need to go further. You know, liberating for first century CE, you know, Galilee and Judah is not necessarily, you know, oh, yeah. today. It's the spirit of that, but we got to take it further because it's oh, still see, yeah. Yeah, yeah, this is right. this is what yeah. you would call a global edict. This is this is something cultural, regional, geographical, right? Very, yeah. yeah. First century Jewish yeah, culture, what was going on at that time in that culture. Um, yeah, and, and again, if the spirit of what Jesus is trying to say is, let's make this thing a little more equal, let's actually give more power to women, then let's follow that, if we're going to follow anything, let's follow that train of thought and bring that into today. And whatever it, whatever that would look like, that that I think makes more sense to follow the spirit of what what Jesus is going for. But but going to the whole thing about the the that translation of unchastity, what translation is that? Where do we is that like King James or something? Where do you get that? No, it's New Revised Standard. Really, it is. Yeah, I just I just dislike the word. Uh, I, I do too. We need yeah. to get Elizabeth Schrader to talk to that committee to talk to the committee again. Like she is about her passage in John. So. 
I, I think we need to write a heretic happy hour Bible. Well, I'm all for that. I think we should do a progressive Bible, dude. That's been one of my dreams. And choir should publish it. Wow. And it should have notes. It should have like, so I, I would suggest we use the like New Testament. We, we use the David Bentley Hart new translation of the New Testament. And then all the notes under all the passages are like Brian Zahn, Brad Jerzak, Peter Inns, Greg Boyd, like, I just think that would, I would buy that. That would be Keith amazing. Giles, yeah, Matt, I'll write the forward, but I. <laughs> I mean, I, I'd like to write a couple things. Sure. No, no, I'll, I'll write the forward. That's it. After that, I'm out. <laughs> that's no, a huge project. Select books, maybe. I'll, I'll write the forward. I'll, I'll I'll leave it to you, big brains, to to do all of the heavy lifting. So can I can I can I say I just looked up this passage, Matthew. 5, 31 through 32, and David Bentley Hart's new translation of the New Testament. And, and here, here's how he renders it. He says, whoever divorces his wife, he must provide her with a writ of separation. Whereas I tell you that everyone who divorces his wife, except in cases of whorishness, causes her to commit adultery. That's, no, no, no. Uh-uh. No, David, David, David. No, 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 no. Mm-hmm. And whoever wins a divorced woman commits adultery. So no, whorishness seems Whorishness. Oh, boy. Whorishness. <laughs> Except in the cases of extreme, um, like extreme unfaithfulness, so, right? So, You're, you, the woman is shaming. If she's if she's a hoe, it's all good. So how would how do you think that word instead of unchastity or whorishness, how should it be translated? Sexual fornication. Just, just it's amb- it's it's a bit ambiguous in it's a bit ambiguous in its ancient context, and it needs to remain ambiguous because they don't define it. I mean, this is a huge part of my research on First Corinthians seven because Paul is talking all about pornea. He doesn't define it. So, like one of the questions I ask is: Is having sex with a slave would, would Paul have considered that pornea? Would he would he have considered that sexual fornication or not? Because he doesn't say so. So we don't know, right? So when it's ambiguous in the ancient world, I think we need to re- keep it ambiguous so that we have the freedom to explore. So, so let me ask you this, Katie, the New Testament scholar, right? In the in the original Greek. So we see this uh, in, in in verse nine, it says, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, comma, except for unchastity, comma, is that is that uh, that split? Is that part of the original text? Or is that something that well, was no, inserted because, by the translators? Well, there's no commas. There's there's no punctuation. No, I, in yeah, the, I know. I know there's the no punctuation in the oh, original yeah, okay. Greek. But what I'm saying is this particular, the, except for unchastity, is that something that's actually in the original text? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I'll look it up real quick. I don't think there's any significant textual variance. But let me double check. Let me double check. Well, I mean, can we can we get to a point where um where we realize, I mean, you mentioned that that uh, is slut shaming, but what if what if Jesus was doing that? I mean, I, I mean, for me personally, like I believe Jesus got some stuff wrong. Like I, I, just, I just personally believe that. Like I, I, but I don't think he was perfect in that way. I think he learned and grew. Like and so maybe Jesus would have done some stuff like that. Where today we'd be like, oh, Jesus was being like a slut shaming asshole. I'm not, you know what, I, Matt, I completely agree with you on that because when, uh, when, when he, um, dealt with the Syrophoenician woman whose daughter was, uh, you know, he basically called her a dog, That's right. you know, and, and, and there, and I, I've seen so much, uh, a theological tiptoeing around that. Oh, well, no, he meant this and he meant that. No, he called her a dog, you know, and, 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 and basically I'm just going to get right down to it that because she was a female, he called her a dog. He called her a bitch. Yeah, and I think the, for me, the point of that story, I mean, it's harsh, right? But the um, the point of that story is she comes right back at him and she puts him right in his place. He's like, all right, yeah, you're yeah. right. 
Which I think actually makes Jesus yeah. much cooler. He's like, oh yeah, good point. Right. Cool. It, 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 exactly. That, that goes that goes to Matt's point that Jesus doesn't always get it right. You know, she checked him and, and Jesus, you know, walked it back. Speaking of not getting it right, should we move to Paul? Oh, <laughs> great transition yeah. there. <laughs> that was a, a professional, That was guys. an excellent segue. Not getting it right. Can I start this discussion just by saying fuck Paul and, and then we can move on from there? If, if that's I how you feel, we, 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 still need that, we still need that debate though. Me and Katie, pro Paul, and uh, Derek, you, you and Brandon Robertson, not pro Paul. Appreciative yeah. of Paul, at least. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah, I give some sympathy for true Paul. Pseudo Paul can can kiss my butt. Yeah. Undisputed Paul, the seven undisputed. Yeah, the undisputed Paul. Paul. I'm, I'm happy to talk about him. Well, let's, yeah, let's talk about Paul in 1 Corinthians okay. 7, my favorite chapter ever of any chapter in the whole Bible. Um, so this is like one of those interesting <laughs> passages where it's used to both stigmatize and condemn divorce. And then it's, and then I turn around and read it. I'm like, how this is telling people if they separate to stay separated. Um, so yeah, it's verses 10 through 16. I don't think we need to read the whole thing. Uh, but maybe one of the relevant verses is, or I can just summarize, you know, Paul says very clearly, like, do stay with your spouse um, if you can. And then he says very clearly, but um, if you do separate, you should, you should remain separated. And then the caveat is he's like, and you should be like I am, which was someone with self-control who didn't need to be married in order to um, have like sexual, you know, se- sexual uh, relations. But, you know, for me, this is a this is really a passage more about kind of self-control and defining what pornea is, about sexual fornication is. I don't think Paul cared about marriage. You know, like if, if they're married when they become Christian, that's fine. But he's not pushing people to get married. He's not trying to keep people in these relationships. Um, and so I, I love it that he says if you separate because of whatever reason, you know, that's fine. Just remain, remain single. Now, is that is that Paul's opinion based on his own life, or is this something that he thinks that everybody, or is is this something that should be universal? Because what what I what I think Paul is doing is he's interjecting his opinion here, and there and there's there is yeah. no yeah. there is no uh, prior scriptural precedent for him to rely on here. He's just saying something. Yeah, and yeah. he says really clearly when it's not I but the Lord, and then he says really clearly when it's not the Lord but me. Yeah, right. yeah. And you know, I think you have to also say there are several. I think it's in Ephesians. Um, there's also a place where Paul makes a similar argument about not getting married or staying single, etc. But you know, if you're burning with lust, it's better to marry than to burn. Whatever. No, that's in First Corinthians seven. It's straight okay. on down. Yeah, better better okay. to marry than to be aflame with passion. There it is. Okay, yes. so I'm sorry. It is this. It is First Corinthians seven. Yeah. But doesn't he also then in, in that passage, if you read the entire chapter seven in context, he's making a point. I believe it's because he believes that they are close to a an event that's about to happen that because that event is coming quickly and soon, um, that's why you shouldn't worry about starting a family right now. So I, I think there's even sort of a caveat for like, he's even, again, not just not I, but the Lord or, you know, or not the Lord, but I say to you, but there's even sort of a um, current events, sort of a context in which, because Paul is saying that specific thing, I think, because he thinks um, that some events are going to happen soon, let's say the day of the Lord, which would translate to like AD 70, that because these things are going to happen quickly, you shouldn't be concerned about these these issues, about getting so, married, starting a family. Yeah, it's a common interpretation of Paul. It's not one that I fully agree with personally. Um, I think Paul, I think this whole chapter is actually about the nature of self-control and the nature of pornea, which I talk about 
in my book. But um, for me, I think Paul is upholding a very elite male um, virtue, which is self-control, the ability to completely control yourself, especially around your sexual desire. He's saying everyone should be like me, but if you can't, then you're allowed to have, um, you're allowed to satiate your passion, but only in the context of marriage. Yeah. I think that's what this entire chapter is about, including the instructions about the circumcised, uncircumcised, and the enslaved. So uh, there might be sort of an apocalyptic mindset behind it, but I don't think that's why he's telling people not to get married. Um, You know, I think he's telling them have self, have some flippin' self control. Right. Because that was an upheld virtue. Right. So the only, there's two verses that I'm aware, actually three that I can see. There's three verses that, that's, uh, that I think are pointed to as to for why people would say they think there is, that he does have that in mind. So verse 26 of chapter seven, he says, because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Uh, are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. Oh, uh, and then let's see in verse 29, he says, what I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none, those who mourn as if they did not, etc. And then at the end of that thought, he says, uh, for this world in its present form is passing away. So it seems to me, because of those three verses, it does seem like he's couching his advice in in the context of because there's A, a present crisis, B, the time is short, and C, this world in its present form is passing away. It seems like that He's using those as modifiers to explain why he's trying to impose those sorts of ideas. Now, I think the reason why, though, I think he's so clear that you should all be like I am as someone with self-control. Like that, that's actually the reason. And then I think the other stuff is like, and maybe like maybe the maybe we're coming to the like day of the Lord. Maybe we're yeah, coming so- to this apocalyptic end. It's in the background. But like you could just as easily say we're coming to an apocalyptic end. Go screw whoever you want. That's what I would say. He doesn't say that, yeah. right? <laughs> so it's this, like, I, I believe, so my, my whole thesis is that he really wants to promote this virtue of self-control. And that interestingly, in doing so, he says, actually, this isn't restricted to men anymore. Women can have self-control, so can enslaved yeah. I, I think Paul said So him. I think that's the real magic to me of this chapter. Paul, Paul is setting himself up to be some kind of model here. And, um, and, and, and really, you know, and again, it's, it's one of these things where there's, there is no scriptural precedent, uh, prior to it. There's, it's just something that, um, it's something that Paul spun out of whole cloth because he thinks it's the right thing to do. And, and that's, that's another reason why I say fuck Paul. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, for the, for people who are, have experienced stigma because of divorce, um, I want to hold up this passage as one that, um, again, this I think the spirit of, of what Paul says may be more helpful than the actuality. But, you know, Paul very clearly says, you know, if like if any believer who has a wife is an unbeliever, um, he should not divorce her. But then he uh, he says that the uh, like in verse 15. Yeah, verse 15. Thank you. The unbelieving yeah. partner separates. Let it be so. In such case, the brother or sister is not bound. It's to peace that God has called you. And that it is peace that God has called you um, is is maybe what should define us, not our marital status. Okay. I'll like, so Paul gives some wiggle room here. Yeah. Like if, if, you're, if your spouse separates or if you separate from your spouse, like go with it. Yep. And he's given a lot more wiggle room than like modern people. Like even John Piper right? recently did this thing. On, I, think it was, I think it was on Desiring God about how um, like if you're married to someone who's an unbeliever, like you can kick him out of the church. And here it's like, wait, don't, don't you like, look at this, like, look at this, look at Paul, 
they're not doing he's not saying paul's not saying that see paul's, even paul's, even john piper said fuck paul <laughs> I, I know but in the other way <laughs> sorry. You know, he's even becoming more rigid <laughs> i'm sorry i just i couldn't i couldn't pass that one up sorry <laughs> yeah no it's all it's all good it's all good but um I guess we probably don't have time for for is First Timothy pseudo Paul. I would say so. It's okay. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. let's say it's pseudo Paul. So let's leave pseudo Paul for our lovely Patreon supporters. So we're gonna do that in the bonus round. So um, bonus. But before, but before we uh, before we wrap up here in the regular episode, I would just like to tell all you lovely listeners that if you can't get enough Heretic Happy Hour, if you love our Heretics of the Week. And you want to get some of their books, you can. You can go to heretichappyhour.com slash store. No, that's that's where we sell merch. If you, we've got a bookstore though, there's a link. <laughs> Damn it's, it's, am, it's amateur hour here. Start the website. Just go to hereticappyhour.com, <laughs> click the bookstore at the top, and you will save 15% off most of those titles. And there's a lot of good ones, so check out that bookstore. And after you go to the bookstore. We would love to have you in our Facebook group, Heresy After Hours. We got thousands, literally, of heretics who are asking tough, heretical, sweet, snarky questions. And so it's a great community. So come join that. And we also have a Facebook community that's exclusive to our patrons. So after your curiosity about First Timothy gets the better of you, you could become a patron and then join the Patreon group uh, that's exclusive on Facebook. That's right. And if you are uh, a supporter on Patreon of the Heretic Happy Hour, we need to stop right now and say, you are a beautiful and amazing person. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It means so much to us that you support us financially. Um, and that's why we take the extra time to record bonus interview content, bonus uh, podcast content, and provide that for you guys uh, as a way of saying thank you. Uh, and we have new, we have tiers. So like at the $2 level, you get all that. $10 level, you also get uh, PDFs of our books. The $25 level, we're doing quarterly Zoom calls with uh, the, the hosts here, and we'll have a call with you on a quarterly basis. And there's even a $100 level for those of you with more money than cents, and um, we love you as well. So go to patreon.com slash hour. Check it out. Find a level that is right for you. We, By the way, we also sell indulgences there as well, so check those out. Um, and we just want to, it's our way of saying thank you to all of you who have supported uh, us through Patreon. It means a whole lot. Thanks. And of course, if you enjoy this podcast, we beseech thee to go out to iTunes and rateth us a five-star rating, lest the Lord smite thee with golden hemorrhoids. <laughs> golden, huh? That's my favorite one. That's my favorite one, by the way. The golden hemorrhoids? The, the hemorrhoids thing. That's, that's a nice touch. A very nice touch. God's, God's wrath is getting creative out there. That's right. <laughs> God don't fuck around, man.